welcome to the Better Being Podcast with Greg Stark and Ali Orr. This is a podcast that dives into the four pillars of performance, movement, mindset, nutrition, and mental health. We speak with experts, find real-life case studies and helpful anecdotes, and we do our best to learn more about optimizing human performance. All right. Well, today on the podcast, we are speaking to Danielle Kelly, who is the head of diversity and inclusion at HSF. Um, Welcome to the podcast, Danielle, and we'd love to start with just a little bit of background on you and how you ended up here. Sure. Thanks, Ali. And it's great to to be here today. Um, So I am the Global Head of Diversity and Inclusion at uh, law firm Herbert Smith Freehills. I've been in this role for some years. Prior to that, I was a lawyer with the firm um, and I've had various sort of permutations of different roles in the firm, including leaving for a period, living in the Middle East um, and, and having three children and then coming back. But, but ultimately, my role now is sort of really at the crossroads of people, culture and, and in some respects, how we interact with our clients because more and more our clients are really interested in having conversations with us about culture and about the diversity of the team that we put forward to them and also and particularly recently um, since the the pandemic um, about mental health as well. Yeah that's really really interesting it seems like you cover a lot of ground with that. Yeah it's one of those roles that um, sort of the sky's the limit in terms of what you can get involved in which requires a certain discipline though to ensure that you don't you know, spread yourself too thin and then end up doing too many things not particularly well. So um, we're a small team of four in the DNI group um, globally. And so one of my mantras with the team is um, let's really choose our field of play and work out where we can have the biggest impact um, because otherwise we really can be pulled in too many directions because there are many people, and this is a great thing, but many people who feel really passionate about DNI and we get phone calls every day with another great idea or another great initiative or project. And um, if we followed all of those leads, um, I don't know where we'd be now. So we've always, that's why we have a, a very clear overriding strategy called Leading for Inclusion, which is actually on our website. We share that regularly with clients, but that just really helps keeping us staying focused to the the overriding objective, which is essentially to be working on those things that nudge our culture to be more inclusive of the, the everyone in the organisation because we know that when the culture is more inclusive, um, the benefits to mental health and wellbeing, but also the benefits in terms of being able to solve really complex problems for clients are just really obvious. Both, you know, that I think intuitively, but also it's certainly backed up by the research. Yes, that sort of um, flows into my next question. I was going to ask you, what do you think lawyers in particular, um, what are the challenges that they face in terms of wellness and mental health? Yeah, where do I start? Um, Well, let's start with the, and I'll use generalisations for a little bit if you'll forgive me for that, but I think it can be said that often the type of personality that is attracted to law is somebody who is um, perfectionistic. Um, They are then trained to look for what can go wrong 
um, they're trained to mitigate risk and then um, they're often highly competitive it's very competitive as you would know to get into law and then even more so now the competition to get a graduate position um, is incredibly tough and so they then enter the profession often with not a whole lot of education around mental health and well-being sure there might be a module on that as part of their degree but it's very light touch and it's more around that you know mental health and well-being is an issue in the profession rather than a deeper sort of understanding of some of the things that they can do to support their own well-being and then they get into the profession they're working very hard um, they've got the pressures of um, needing to progress through the firm but also you know billable hours um high demands from clients and that in some ways can be a perfect storm for sort of feeling that things are out of control and when you when you think that one of the biggest causes of mental distress can be that sense of a lack of control um i think that it, that's a significant factor factor for lawyers it's even you know if you're a very senior partner you are still at the, the the mercy, for want of a better word, of a, the client demand. So if you've got your holidays booked next week, but then the, a big deal comes through the door and you know you need to front that deal, well, it's likely that unless you're well-resourced and you've got a, a second partner that could do that deal, that you may well have to, you know, postpone your holiday. And I think unless those things are managed well and we have really good conversations around boundary setting that can all give rise to a sense of um of lack of control and then declining mental health it's really interesting i mean it sounds i mean with lawyers it's a case of i mean their their personality as you say coming into the profession but then also that atmosphere of of the profession wanting to be high performers how do you create that work smarter, not longer mentality when I guess a key marker of their performance is their billable hours? Mm. This is in a, in a sense, it's the, the ultimate question for the legal profession, isn't it? Because we are structured in a way that I think can be often quite counterproductive to good mental health where billable hours is, is such a high priority. Having said that, if I look back to the time when I was practicing as a lawyer and then I compare with now, I think the conversation has changed in the positive direction quite substantially. When I first started, nobody talked about mental health. Um, you certainly wouldn't have raised any issues in relation to your own mental health because you know, essentially we are selling, what we sell is our mental output. And so there's no way anyone wanted to admit that there might be something wrong with with the way um, their brain was working. Whereas now it's, um, we have some of the most senior people in our organisation being quite open about their own struggles with depression and anxiety. We actually ran a, a series of um, stories on our internet called This Is Me, where we profiled people from across the global network, from very junior to very senior, who were prepared to speak openly about their own experience of, of mental ill health. And But to take that back to your question around, you know, the, the impact of billable hours, while we all as lawyers have that billable hour target, we've done a lot of work in recent years to move that conversation from just being one about billable hours to being about a, we call it a balanced scorecard 
So all of our partners are assessed on a balanced scorecard where financial contribution is one of six measures that they are um, they, that they are measured against. And so some of the others are people and culture, um, firm building initiatives, diversity and inclusion, um, how they actually cross sell across uh, across the business. So. I think our conversations around what we value and what success looks like have become much more sophisticated and nuanced in the, in the last decade. And I, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, it sounds like there's, there's other markers now uh, that show performance that are much more you know, well-rounded and about uh, cohesiveness amongst the team. Yeah. And I guess the other thing... Uh, now that the conversations are happening a lot more around psychological health and how it you know, particularly impacts uh, lawyers, do you think that this exacerbates the stigma or the trauma associated within the profession? So is your question around, do we spend almost too much time sort of navel gazing around issues about mental health and, and not enough time actually doing something about them? Yeah, to a degree, like uh, we can talk about the issue, but how we, get people to change their behaviours that help yeah. promote it is, is, is another thing. And that if you're being reinforced a message of uh, you're at great risk of mental health, do you start to think, am I suffering from mental health? Because yeah. it's, only, it's going to affect me. Yeah, I think it's a good question. Um, I actually get quite frustrated at times when I hear the stats around mental ill health in the legal profession being touted so often because I feel it for some it's almost um, a, a perverse sort of mark of, I don't know, um, so, some sort of mark of honour that the stats are so high. But actually, if you look at the veterinary profession and parts of the um, medical profession, they are absolutely just as high with similar but different demands on, on um, people within those professions. So I think it's really important that now that we have recognised the issue, and, and I think that, that the first big milestone in that recognition was when the um, Courting the Blues report came out over 10 years ago now, and then Professor Ian Hickey from um, the Brain and Mind Institute at the University of Sydney did a, a terrific piece of research around mental health in the legal profession. But now, 10 years on, a number of things have been implemented. We are working more collaboratively across the profession with respect to mental health. So, for instance, I, I together with um, one of our senior partners, sit on the Resilience at Law group of, of large law firms, um, and we together collaborate on what we can do as a profession to improve mental health because this really shouldn't be something that we should feel competitive about. Um, we also work closely with the Minds Count Foundation, used to be called the Tristan Jepson Memorial Foundation, again, in relation to systemic things that we can do to improve um, the issues around stigma with respect to mental health, but also what we can do. Um, and, and then I think it's ensuring that at a firm level, rather than just simply talking about the stats, you're actually doing something. So for instance, at HSF, we launched our global mental health strategy last year. Um, it's called Thrive. Again, we have a summary of that on our website because um, a number of clients are, are, have asked us to, to, to see that. They're really interested, again, having that conversation. Um, 
And then sitting under that, we have a global mental health champion program. So in Australia, we have almost 300 mental health champions. We have a number in London. Um, we've just launched the program in New, our New York office, which probably couldn't come soon enough given what's going on in um, the US at the moment. And we also launched late last year in Asia. And the role of those mental health champions is to be essentially a, another pair of eyes and ears within the business looking out for their colleagues in terms of um, mental health. So being able to have a caring and compassionate conversation with a colleague about whom they might be worried and to have a conversation in a way that doesn't feel intrusive, but that just lets that person know that, you know, there is somebody that, that cares about them. But also we've been really clear that those mental health champions are not counsellors and um, that they really are there to signpost where you might be able to seek further help, such as GP. We have an in-house psych in um, psychologist um, or, our, of course, our, our EAP. So we actually have another check-in session for our men mental health champions next week where we're going to do some Zoom breakout sessions where they can share some of the key themes that they're hearing coming out of some of their conversations that they're having. So is that, is that designed with mental health champions to have a bit of a, a bottom-up leadership approach to mental health in the workplace? Uh, I mean, we've obviously worked a lot with your leadership group as well. Um, how, do you, how do you get buy-in from the leaders at the top and how does that work with your mental health champions and, and getting them to push from the yeah. bottom? Yeah, I think we got the buy-in from our leaders a few years ago when um, I still remember we presented a paper to the, the Global Council and to our, our executive on why businesses, leading businesses are focusing now on mental health and wellbeing as, as one of the key components of their people and culture strategy. And look, it's not rocket science. When you present a business case like that, you've got to present lots of data. And we used um, some of the stats that, that organisations like PwC have released around, you know, the, the return on investment for every dollar that you spend on mental health, the return on investment for the organisation. Um, there's a lot of stats that, that, that organisations like um, Black Dog, etc., have produced. But we were careful also, I should say, before going on, that it's very easy for those stats to become a little bit overwhelming because, you know, it almost becomes a little meaningless when you talk about the, the thousands of hours lost to mental health within organisations. It doesn't feel particularly personal. So we sort of framed those stats around some personal stories. And so it helped that we had, you know, members of the council who were prepared to share their stories. And so we very much framed the need to focus on mental health and wellbeing as going to the heart of our people and culture strategy. And we made the link clear that when you have a mentally healthy workplace and one that supports the well-being of people the business outcome is better and intuitively that makes sense but then we back that up with, with all the data so i don't find now that we need to go back to that business case i think as a firm but also societally we've moved on from that which is a good thing and in the same way i i, I don't find any more that i need to be talking about the business case for why we need to focus on diversity and inclusion which is also a good thing. Um, 
So that's the top-down approach, but then the bottom-up approach has been that mental health champion program because we found that so many of our people wanted to be involved, but sort of circling back to what I said at the beginning, you need to harness that energy so that you don't, you're not sort of running around in a whole lot of different directions. So the way we've harnessed it is to create a formal program, um, to give the, give the, the, the champions some training. We've got, you know, a hub on our, our internet with resources that they can access. And then we've created a steering committee. And we, so we, the, the really active members of that, that mental health champion program have joined the steering committee. And it's actually one of the few committees in the firm that truly crosses um, all seniority levels and business services and the practice group. So for me, as a diversity and inclusion person, that feels really good because it feels like that cognitive diversity in action. And, and, and you really do see the benefit of it because there's such diverse perspectives that um, are brought up in, in those steering committee meetings. And I think we've done quite a bit to make it feel a, a psychologically safe environment where people can bring forward their, their different perspectives. Sounds like a great program. And um, there's lots of different elements to that that I, that I really like. And I guess the, the interesting part is uh, with well-being and, and mental well-being being a part of that, we've seen it over the years, sort of being a a general HR function, and then it became a bit of an OHS area of how do we, uh, you know, prevent claims and those sort of things. And then I think you mentioned just before it's about people and culture and and making sure your people are well so that you don't have issues like presenteeism. And now we're starting to see it fit under that diversity and inclusion banner. Um, and as you're obviously a leader on this front, how do you see well-being interacting with diversity and inclusion? Yeah, it's a good question. And in fact, one of our um, fabulous senior associates in our Brisbane office, she's the recipient of um, the Catherine Everett Leadership Fellowship for Women um, this year. Her name's Bianca Janovich, and she's just done her master's on that, that master's thesis on that topic, i.e. the link between diversity and inclusion and better um, mental health and well-being within the legal profession. So just to go back to the beginning of your question, you're right in, in the way you've articulated that trajectory. Um, this used to be seen very much in the risk space. Um, I, I still remember, because um, I probably go back at firm too long, but you know, it was the, about 2009 when, when Deloitte actually wrote a risk report for us where mental health was one of the, the areas that, that was addressed as part of the risk profile of us as a law firm. Um, that was then um, in, in when we were looking to address that, we, we saw that through a risk lens. But as you've articulated over time, of course, that risk lens doesn't go away, but we've wrapped it around the, the people and culture um, framework, which has meant that it's a, I suppose, a much more compassionate response than you might get if it's purely a compliance or risk-related response. Um, and then, as you've said, the, the final step has been sort of moving mental health and wellbeing into the DNI portfolio because it makes sense that the more inclusive your organisation is, the more that the greater the well-being within the organization i can't think of a single organization that is um inherently non-inclusive or, or or where the 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 culture is an unhappy one where 
you would see high levels of well-being and high levels of engagement amongst the employees within that organisation. And there's still research being done in that space, but um, the research that's coming out already, some of the, the stuff that Harvard's done is definitely showing that link. Um, so for me, it, 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 it completely makes sense that if I'm looking at the strategies and the programs to nudge our culture to be more inclusive, by definition, I must be looking at the things that we can do to support the mental health and well-being of our people. The, the two very much go together. Yeah, so it sounds a bit like that social connection part of things as well, that the more cohesive people feel and connected they feel, the, the greater the, the well-being outcomes. Um, gender diversity has been, particularly in law, a big talking point for the last decade, and I know you've done a lot in that space. Um, what's, what's been the most significant changes that you've seen? Gosh, where do I start? Well, when I first stopped practicing as a lawyer, I clearly remember my decision-making process. I, I had a good legal career ahead of me, but with three young children, I just couldn't see a path clear to, you know, um, continuing my, my career the way I had been doing before children. And, and I just couldn't see that, that clear path. And at the time, there were very few female partners in the firm. And in fact, our partnership policy still um, prohibited anything other than full-time work. Fast forward to now, and it's such a different picture. So now we would have around 35% of our female senior associates working less than full-time. Um, I'd love it. I'd love that to be less gendered. I'd love more men to be taking up flexible work options, but I'm hopeful with, with all the working from home that's now happening that we will see more of that. Um, but also the number of women in our partnership and, and in partnerships across the legal profession has increased dramatically in that time. So even from when we first set our gender targets in 2014, when we had 18% of our partnership being female, we're now at 27% which is actually a 50% like a increase in the number of women in the partnership. And it's actually 64 more women in, in our global partnership. And that just makes the firm feel like a very different place. Um, it obviously means there's more role models for women as they look to the senior levels of the profession. But it also means that we've got different voices at the leadership table because we've also got more women partners in some of those very senior leadership roles, such as heading up practice groups or on the council or on the core executive. And that's made a huge difference to, to, the, uh, to just the tone of the organisation, I think. But where we still, and look, there's obviously a long way to go, um, but I think there's even further to go though on ethnic diversity and I, I, that, that worries me that we still have so few ethnically diverse partners. It's obviously improving, but we've got a long way to go. And I, I know we partner quite closely with the Asian Australia Lawyers Association in relation to a lot of the work they do. But um, I think like with gender, this is not an issue that is just going to be fixed through the affliction of time because this goes to deep-seated unconscious biases and systemic issues in the profession and to 
ideas around what a leader looks like and I think even unconsciously and um, many professions have leadership with a very see leadership with a very western lens Um, and so there's a lot that we need to do at a firm level but also at a professional level to be more inclusive of greater ethnic diversity because when I look at our grads there's a whole lot of ethnic diversity there and it's just not mirrored at the partnership level. Yeah, I mean, these things, they do take time to get people to have that experience and, and to get up to those levels. And it sounds, again, like you're doing a fantastic job, but those numbers sound higher than, than the rest of the industry. Uh, but how do you go about creating the environment and the, the process to change, to promote equality without other groups feeling like they're being suppressed? Yeah, okay. So I think... When you ask that question, the the thing that really comes to mind is the conversations we had back in 2014 when we announced our gender targets where, you know, somewhat understandably there were some male senior associates who would have seen themselves quite justifiably on our partnership pipeline who saw the announcement of those gender targets as somehow um, contrary to their partnership expectations. So they felt that um, we now don't have a level playing field because we now have a target that says we want to have at that time 30% of our partnership female. Our target is now for 35% of our partnership to be female. Um, and so that re- it's so important to listen to those views. We see at a global level what happens when we don't listen to other views. All that results is increasing polarisation of views. So we we held a number of town halls um, where we we listened to a range of views. But ultimately, it's so important, I think, for people to understand that targets don't... uh, Targets are there because we didn't have a level playing field. Because if we had a level playing field, And if we were a true meritocracy, I don't think that concept even exists because a meritocracy by definition is a subjective thing. Um, You know, what you see in somebody's merit may be quite different from what I see in somebody's merit. So I think we need to dump that expression about meritocracies. But we certainly didn't have a level playing field because if we did, we actually would have around 65% of our partnership being female because that's that our, our lawyers are 65% female. So a, merit, a true meritocracy would just see a direct translation of that at a partnership level. And, of course, it, it doesn't. And so you then have to ask, well, why is that? And I still remember presenting some data to partners where I showed how we were assessing talent at the time from a gender perspective. And I showed the um, percent of senior female lawyers and the percent of male lawyers who were seen as top talent. And at that time, this is going back to 2013, it actually showed that more males were being assessed as top talent than females at that senior level. And I asked them why they thought that was, and many of the people, mainly men in the room, said, well, because by that stage, a lot of those women have had children, they're working less than full-time, and they're probably not as ambitious or they've taken their eye off their career you know, comments that you actually hear a lot or if you don't hear, you know, people are saying it in their head. I said, okay, well, let's assume for a moment that's true. Let's look at the same data at the two-year level when, you know, they're in their mid-20s. At that point, everyone's working full-time. 
this the particular group I was looking at no one had had children I said do you agree we're comparing apples with apples they said yes so I put the same stats out for men and women in terms of assessment of talent and they were stunned to see that it was the same issue so even at that two-year level the men were being rated more highly than the women and they were perplexed because they'd all agreed that at, at interview stage when we were recruiting these grads actually often the women were more impressive and so that then opened up that whole conversation around why could this be the case and they recognized and i think accepted at that sort of visceral level that this must be because of the unconscious biases that each of us are bringing to our assessment of talent and um that resulted in a whole series of workshops and and, and sort of training for our leaders around understanding your unconscious biases and framing it very much as this is actually a really important life skill for making better decisions. This is not saying you're wrong or you're somehow, you know, ill-intentioned towards others. This is recognising that unconscious bias is a human phenomenon and it often serves us very well to get through day-to-day -day life and for simple tasks. But when we let our unconscious biases impact our more complex or executive level decision-making, they can often lead us down the wrong path. And so that then opened that conversation. And now when we do that talent matrix, we've seen for a number of years now, a complete turnaround in those stats. So the, 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 the gender mix is much more reflective of the underlying population. Yeah, that's really interesting and and it sounds like the, the key to it all is is having everyone included in that process and not having separate groups making separate decisions but everyone's coming together and the other thing that i, I like that what you were talking about earlier is that um having being a, a young father myself that having men included in these conversations that you you can have more time with your family and still have a career and still stay healthy What's the key to, to having it all? What is the key for everyone to, to be able to do all those aspects of life? Gosh, I wish I knew. <laughs> um, I've got three kids myself and I don't think there is any key to having it all. I don't think you can have it all at the same time. As I say to, I've got two daughters and a son and I particularly say this to my daughters because I know it's going to be harder for them. Um, you... Uh, Life is a marathon and there will be times at which your career will take precedence and there'll be times at which your career won't take precedence or where you'll feel like you're stagnating or sort of just treading water for a while. But what's really important is to be tapping into mentors and people that can give you advice that truly have your best interests at heart so that you don't get to 50 and sort of think mm, how did i end up here this actually isn't where i wanted to be so that you have a sort of an overriding concept of what um what you want to achieve but then sort of be self-compassionate around it's not going to always work out that way and there are going to be times when it will feel like you're not going in the right direction but it's it's, it's having that self-awareness around that and that ability to be self-compassionate and to seek out advice that I think is more important than thinking I need to have it all. I think one of your partners there once said it best to me is that you can have it all but you can't have it all at once. And I think that's exactly what you were saying there, that you've just got to prioritise different things in your life at different times. 
but not get yeah. to that point where you've been climbing a ladder and get to the top of the ladder and realize it's the long ladder, the wrong ladder that you're on. Yeah, completely. And I guess the last few months have been really interesting. The world has been flipped on its head. How has the workplace changed at Herbert Smith Freehills and what changes would you like to see stick around going forward? Mm. Look, it's changed enormously. Um, I often reflect that some of the initiatives that I've been working on for years around flexible work and on mainstreaming more agile ways of working beyond being something that's just seen as the province of working mums, they have been achieved overnight with um, COVID, which is um, actually been fantastic um, whilst also acknowledging, you know, at a global level and at a humanitarian level, it's obviously been very difficult and, and an economic level. But from the point of view of organisations, I think this um, rapid experiment in working from home in a way that would never have happened without the external force of the pandemic has been just so interesting. And, and for me, just participating in meetings where I feel that because everyone's, um, and a number of my colleagues have said this, we're all participating in those meetings from home, it's had the impact of flattening the structure. So whereas I do a lot of calls with London and whereas often, you know, if it's 6pm here, it's in the morning in London and there'd be, say, five people in a meeting room in London all having their coffee and there'd be the natural side conversations that happen that if you're sort of sitting on the other end of, of a VC, you can't hear and it feels like the power's in the room where the majority of people are. That's all gone now because we're all in our own rooms and I... I have found that the conversations we've had in meetings as a result have actually been a lot better. And so we are talking a lot at the moment about what we start, stop and continue doing. And certainly one of the things that we will definitely be continuing is um, having the default for meetings to be to set up so that people can attend virtually rather than the old way, which was, oh, I'm not in the office that day. Can you send me a, a link to join virtually? So you sort of had to ask for that. Now it will be the default. And I think also being much more purposeful and intentional around where we work. I, for one, won't be going into the office unless I have a reason to go into the office. And often I will have that reason, but um, I will, it will be a reason because I'm visiting a client or, or, or seeing a colleague and, and there's a reason for that. And I think from a presenteeism viewpoint, that just is going to make people more, much more efficient because you're going to be working where it makes most sense on any given day. Yeah, definitely. People are a lot more efficient by the sounds of things. There's other areas that, that are struggling, but it is a, a very exciting time given as you said the the tragedy that has occurred in other areas of life and around the world uh, mm. i could speak to you all day and I'm, i know we're running over time already uh but thank you for sharing and i'll just hand over to ali to have a quick fire round with you and wrap things up thanks greg thanks. yeah well, everything you've spoken about has been so interesting and I guess it's so important right now in the times that we're in especially relating to diversity and for me in particular I loved hearing you talk about women and how you guys have done so much to help women in the firm and it's really good to hear um, so thanks for your insights. Thanks.
All right, so quick fire round of questions. First one I have for you, if you could change someone's mind about something, what would it be? Uh, the meritocracy, that, that it's a myth. Yeah, I really like that too. That was cool. <laughs> All right, number two, what are you really excited about, about right now in terms of health, fitness, well-being, that type of thing? That I can weave in um, some health and fitness into my day so much more easily now that I'm working from home most days because I can, I can do it when it makes most sense to me rather than trying to fit it in between a commute. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, okay, next one. A book or podcast or something that you've uh, recently enjoyed that you would recommend? I'm going to be greedy and take two. Um, just finished reading Julia Baird's book, Phosphorescence. It is beautiful and I recommend it to everyone. It's essentially about moments of, of beauty and awe when the world goes dark. And while she published it just before COVID, it's so relevant for now. And secondly, I'm loving, as I'm sure many are, Brene Brown's new podcast series, Unlocking Us. Awesome podcast. I would highly recommend that one too for anyone. So relevant. Hmm. Um, okay. One health hack or a travel tip or something that keeps you feeling healthy all the time. Uh, I'm not sure I'm the best role model for this, but I mean, for me, a non-negotiable is I walk my two poodles who are in the room with me right now um, once or twice a day. And it's, um, it's not negotiable in the sense that if I have a meeting at that um, time, I'll just do the meeting over the phone while I walk them. So I, I, I think you actually do have to have non-negotiables around your self-care in terms of um, exercise and, and fitness, whatever that exercise looks like for you. Yeah, that's great. All right, last question. Somebody alive that you would like to have a conversation with, invite them to dinner and you can ask them anything you like. Mm, oh, Michelle Obama. I think she's just awesome. Yeah. yeah and I love that she's doing story time for children at the moment on, on Zoom. It's beautiful. I know. What a great role model. Mm. All right, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I got, a, I got personally a lot out of that conversation, so it's been really great and it seems like you guys are doing great work at HSF. So keep it up. Thanks, Ali. It's been a pleasure speaking with you both and, and thanks for, for showing the leadership to be having these conversations. Thanks for listening to the better being podcast. If you want to learn more, follow us on social media at better being PT on Instagram and as better being on LinkedIn and Facebook. If you like what you heard, drop us a review. And until next time, stay well.